morning. My name is Colton, and I have the pleasure of reading our scripture passage for today. Um, It's going to be Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 52. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1054, and the words will be on the screen as well. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were in, in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were there worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked and straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw that he had occur- what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on to Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of his people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he left them out. He led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was fin- as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God to us, has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. 
And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring to, we bring to you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus also, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he is raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he who God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you it. As they went out, the people begged that, they, that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. And after meeting at the synagogues broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy for eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout woman of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet again and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Colton, for reading that long passage of scripture for us. That is a it's a meal for sure. Well, we have all heard the expression that sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt me. And I think we all intuitively knew when we were kids and first heard that, and we know even better now that that phrase is total garbage, <laughs> right? It doesn't square with our experience at all. Words have the power to, def- to deeply affect us, to change our lives for better or for worse. And some of us can still remember clearly from childhood words of affirmation and encouragement that you might have received from a parent or a coach or a teacher or a friend. But just as clearly you remember words of dismissal, of discouragement, of slander, of hatred. And we remember all of these different types of words because words have the power to shape us. Words have the power to break our bones and to put us back together again. 
Well, some variation of the phrase, the word of God, is used at least eight different times in this text. It depends exactly uh, which words you count in that phrase. Sometimes it's the word of the gospel or the message of salvation. But some variation occurs eight times in this chapter. And this phrase, the word of God, in this chapter is used to refer to the message of the good news about Jesus, what we as Christians call the gospel. Now, the phrase, the word of God, can sound very religious to our ears, right? Even when Colton read the scripture, as we always do when we read the scripture in this church, because we hold it in high esteem and reverence, we say, this is the word of the Lord. But when you hear the word of God, it might call to mind uh, dead religious rigidity. But as we will see, the word of God refers to God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus, who doesn't stand aloof from our concerns, bashing us unlovingly with commandments, but who draws near to his world to rescue us. And so before we go any further this morning, I want to stop And take a moment and pray and seek the Lord that we would meet Jesus this morning, that his word would come near to our hearts. So if you would, join me in prayer. Father God, there are many things that we need in this life. There are things that we feel right now desperately that we need, but there is nothing that we need more than to experience and see the risen Savior Jesus this morning. So Lord, by your spirit, make him plain to us. Make him tangible to us. And may that allow us to leave here changed. We love you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray these things. Amen. Well, in this chapter of the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas are officially commissioned as missionaries from the church of Antioch. And they go to preach the gospel to many different people. And as they do this throughout the chapter, they receive many different responses. Now, before we go any further, I just want to clear this up. Colton and I were talking before the service. There's so many names and towns in this passage. So Antioch Pisidia, the place where they preach, where this sermon is recorded, is not the same place as Antioch where they were sent from. Uh, There were like 16 different towns in this time period in that region named Antioch. So it's easy to get confused. But they went from Antioch to a different Antioch, and that's where they preached. But if the word of God in the gospel is such a highlighted theme in this chapter, and since the majority of chapter 13 is a recorded sermon from the Apostle Paul, I want us to spend time this morning and slow down and talk about that sermon, that word of the gospel that's preached by Paul to this synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia. So we're going to have a simple outline to look at this text this morning. So we're going to look at the word, and then we'll look at the responses to the word, and finally the outcomes of the word. Now, if I was to summarize the message of Paul's sermon here in one sentence, I think it would go something like this. The resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David and is good news for the world. Let me say that again for us. The resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David and is good news for the world. The resurrection is the main point of this sermon, but it's not the resurrection in a historical vacuum. 
Right? That's why the first 10 verses of this sermon, Paul recounts the history of Israel from Abraham to David and ultimately to Jesus to show that Jesus is the promised king who fulfills all of God's ancient promises to his people. And particularly that promise that God made to David, where he said, a son from your line will reign on the throne forever. There will be a king from the line of David on the throne forever, and that will be good news for the world. And so the Jewish people were actively looking for the promised king who would bring them salvation and reign over them as king forever. And that's exactly why in verse 35, Paul quotes Psalm 16, verse 10, which originally was spoken by David. But then he goes on in verse 36 to say, but we know that David did see corruption, right? David did die and he stayed in the grave. He was not the king that Israel was looking for to bring God's promised salvation, But Paul argues that Psalm 1610 is not ultimately about David. It's about the greater David. It's about Jesus, the king who would never see corruption because he did not stay in the grave long enough to be corrupted. As a resurrected king, Jesus reigns never to die again. And this main theme, main thrust of the sermon is summarized for us most succinctly in verses 32 and 33. So I'm going to read those verses again for us. They'll be on the screen for you as well. It says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now that that citation might seem a little strange from Psalm 2. Is Paul saying that Jesus didn't really become God's son until he was resurrected. I think we all in here who know our Bibles and know what we're taught in the church say, well, that can't be true, right? Jesus is eternally equal with his father as God. That can't be true. Well, the language of son that's used here, you are my son, is kingly language from the Old Testament. And it denotes a special relationship that God had with his chosen king. God the Father would call his human chosen king his son. And this goes the whole way back to Genesis, where Adam is pictured as God's royal son who would rule under him over everything that God created. You see, Paul is claiming here, not that the resurrection did anything to alter the divine identity of Jesus, but what he's saying is that the resurrection of Jesus, along with his ascension into heaven, was like a coronation ceremony for Jesus as the Messiah. It was in power as the king over all things. He had done the work of dying for the sins of his people and now raised from the dead, he sits enthroned as the ruler of the universe. And all of this is in fulfillment of what God promised thousands of years prior. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises that go back to Abraham even to Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned. He is the one that Israel was looking for, and he is the one that the whole world, whether they know it or not, longs for. And by God's grace, Jesus, this king, invites us into his rule to live under his reign as king and to be his subjects. And this is good news for us. 
Look with me at verses 38 and 39. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This right here is what Jesus' kingship means for you and for me. It means forgiveness of sins, and it means freedom from the claims of the law of Moses. Now, that phrase, freedom from the claims of the law of Moses, that might be a little bit ambiguous to us. But that word that's translated here as freed into our English translation, at least in this version, uh, is actually the word in the original language that means to justify or to declare righteous. So when we think of that freedom from the law, we should think of other New Testament texts from the Apostle Paul that speak of justification, of being declared righteous in Christ. So let's try to flesh this out a little bit more practically. So in order to do that, let's all think together collectively and try to remember the days and what it was like before the pandemic when we could actually go and sit in a coffee shop right? There's nothing I miss more about the world than going and sitting at my favorite coffee shop, Little Amps, which is a few blocks from my house, and meeting people there for a cup of coffee in the morning. There's just like nothing better. Uh, It's one of the pleasures in life I miss the most. But if you and I are getting coffee at Little Amps, and we, we go from our table, and we go to the counter to order, and I step up first and place my order, and I'm like, oh shoot, I forgot my wallet. Uh, something's going to happen, right? Somebody is going to have to cover the cost of me forgetting my wallet, right? The, the barista could say, well, I forgive you for, for you not having your wallet, and we're going to give you that coffee. But ultimately, forgiveness is costly because that coffee shop can't just give me that coffee. What's going to happen is they're going to eat the cost of my cup of coffee, or you as my friend are going to pay for it for me, or I'm not going to get my cup of coffee. Forgiveness is inherently costly. And in his sacrificial death, what Jesus does for us is he eats the cost of our sin and rebellion against God. Jesus takes the consequences of death upon himself for our sin. And in doing this, paying the cost for our sins, he now extends to us forgiveness of the sins that we have committed against him. Now, this in and of itself is remarkably good. But this is only one side of the coin of what we receive in Jesus Christ. The truth of justification is even better than that. You see, Jesus doesn't just settle our debt and forgive our sins. He doesn't just bring us from the red to the black and make us break even. No, he fills our bank account with his own wealth, with the wealth of his righteousness, his obedience to God for us. Right? This is like the barista at Little Amps not only saying, we'll cover the cost of your coffee, but every time you come in here from now until the day you die, your coffee is covered. This is what the resurrection shows us, affirms for us. Jesus not only pays for our sins in dying on the cross, but as the righteous one, the one that truly lived a righteous life, he was raised from the dead for our justification, as it says in Romans 4, and now offers us his own righteous life. 
You see, God doesn't just count us as morally neutral in forgiving us our sins, like Adam in the Garden of Eden, and then drive us back to the law to try to start again in our relationship with him. He doesn't just bring us back to the starting line. No, in Jesus Christ, in declaring us righteous, he takes us to the finish line. The law cannot bring about true righteousness. But in Christ, God counts us as those who have done everything necessary to be right with God, to have salvation, because Christ has done this work for us and gives it to us free of charge. Praise God. But we receive these benefits of the gospel by virtue of our relationship with Christ as our king. So look at verses 38 and 39 with me again. Notice these two phrases. We have forgiveness of sins through this man, verse 38. And then in verse 39, we have freedom by him. So we receive these benefits as subjects in Jesus's kingdom. Now, when a king wins a battle... That's not just the king that keeps the benefits of his victory, but everybody in his kingdom receives the benefits of him winning that battle. And in the same way, everyone who trusts in Christ by faith has a relationship with him as king where we receive forgiveness and justification. Now, what this means ultimately is that our salvation is not primarily about what we get from King Jesus, but our salvation is about King Jesus. It points us to King Jesus. It glorifies King Jesus. And as Christians, I think that we all have a tendency to view the benefits of knowing Jesus, like forgiveness and justification, as more important than the person of Jesus, who is himself the gospel. Right, So we focus on things like going to heaven when we die and not going to hell, but less frequently do we talk about the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. Right, this, is, this would be like us talking about, for those of us who are married in here, us talking about the beauty of our spouse only in terms of what they do for us rather than in terms of who they are. Now, I know you can't separate those things, and I know that what a spouse does for you or what Jesus gives us is a reflection of their good heart and character. But oftentimes, it's easy to be more focused on, more consumed with what Jesus gives us, as opposed to who he is, as our king, as the one who was raised for us. Church, our salvation is not about us. It's about Jesus. Now notice here before we move on, I just want to, I I can't brush over this and not give a comment to it. There is a, the way in which Luke and the apostles talk about the resurrection of Jesus makes it undeniable that this was a historical fact. Now this is a side note, but I can't just brush over this. So look at verse 31 with me. It says, and for many days, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So notice what Paul says here. The people 
that saw Jesus in the flesh, in the body, after he was raised from the dead, are the people that told me about the gospel. So what we read in Luke's account of Paul's sermon is an eyewitness testimony of Jesus' resurrection. You might be here this morning. I don't know where some of you are at. And it might be hard to see that the message of the Bible is about a guy who was brought back from the dead. That might seem illogical to you or ahistorical, impossible. But notice what the scriptures claim. They claim that this was a historical event from eyewitnesses and that this historical event impacts all of history and it impacts you as a person in the field of history. So just know that's how the Bible talks about the resurrection and there's good evidence for it. So in summary, this is what, and all that we said, Paul proclaims in this sermon that the resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David and is good news for the world. That is the word of the gospel. Now the question is, how ought we as hearers of this message respond? How did Paul urge his hearers in the first century to this sermon? How did he urge them to respond to this message of salvation in Jesus? We'll look at verses 40 to 41. That's where we see this reality. He says, after he presents this message of Jesus as king, this gospel, he says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is a stern warning that Paul gives his original audience. And this quote from the prophets here is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. And in its original context, this verse was a warning to the people of Israel who were enmeshed in sin. It was a warning that if they did not repent, Babylon was coming. And God was going to raise up Babylon to judge them for their sin. And we know from the Old Testament that that's exactly what happens. That Israel doesn't repent and that Babylon comes against them. Right? All my my youth group kids, I should see, like nodding at me. We're studying Habakkuk in youth group this summer. But the work that God did in those days was to raise up Babylon to judge them for sin. However, in the first century, in these days that Paul was speaking, the work that God was doing was to raise Jesus from the dead for the salvation of the sin of the world. And so in our day, even this morning, Jesus still reigns as the resurrected king who is drawing people into his kingdom to experience forgiveness and life. And what Paul is saying to us this morning is don't miss this. This is life-altering news. Slow down, think about this, be caught up into this. Don't miss Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's urging us to get caught up into the big story of what God has done in Jesus Christ and is doing in our day by his spirit to bring about salvation. But notice that not everyone heeds this warning in this chapter, right? The proconsul Sergius at the beginning and the Gentiles, after hearing the gospel, they believe in it. But the magician 
and the Jewish leaders vehemently reject it and oppose it. Now, what is it that causes these different responses to the gospel among these groups? And there were obviously different reasons why the Jewish leaders and why uh, the magician rejected the gospel. But ultimately, I think they both reject the gospel because they were too caught up with their own lives to see the bigger picture of what God was doing in Jesus. So the Jews, right, it says in verse 45, they were jealous of the Gentiles. They see these Gentiles coming into the church and they're like, wait a minute, why is the gospel for them too? And they get stirred up to jealousy. The magician was likely employed by the proconsul Sergius. He was like a paid court magician for this Roman official. And so he's afraid if this guy accepts the gospel, he's going to be out of work. And so he opposes this man receiving the gospel, both for different reasons, the Jewish leaders and the magician. Ultimately, though, they were too caught up with their own lives to notice what God was offering them and inviting them into in the message of Jesus. And now I don't think that any of us in here, maybe you are, but I look at you and I know most of you, and you are not actively opposing the gospel such that if Paul was here today, he would call you a son or daughter of the devil. (laughs) I don't think that's the case. But like these groups, we all get caught up with our own stories and lose sight of what God is doing in our own day. Just think about this with me for a second. Since March, many of us, most of us, have only gotten more busy, more tired, more stressed, more anxious, and more angry. Some of us in here have worked tirelessly at your job, trying to come up with contingency plans of, if the virus does this, then we're going to do this. If the virus does this, then we're going to do this. And you know that all of those contingency plans, can, you can put so much work into them, and they can come crashing down like that. Three, three, four, five different contingency plans. You work hard. It all feels futile. Some of us are looking at the ashes of our five-year financial goals on the ground in front of us. Others have had to play the roles of full-time teacher and full-time mother to their kids, and you're exhausted. Still others are anxious. They have to make decisions about sending kids back to school or themselves going back to work, and they just want to do what is good for your family. And still others of us have been feeding on the endless cycle of social media and the news, and we found ourselves unable to shake a deep sense of hatred and anger and vitriol at certain people or certain events that have taken place in our country. So friends, for all of us here this morning who, are, who have our lives caught up with different things, for all of us, God is offering you a better story in Jesus Christ than the one that you're currently living. He offers you himself. He draws near in the word of the gospel. You see, Jesus wants to lift you up out of your own story to see him, the one who's sitting on the throne as our risen king, who's taking all of these life events, all of our stresses and struggles and sin, and he's making it into something beautiful in the gospel. He continues to do things in our day that we would not believe if we were told. 
So church, let's look with the eyes of faith and see our Savior who understands our burdens and our struggles and our sin and the one who still says, come to me. I've got something better for you. I am the king and in my kingdom, there's better than anything this world and your life can offer you. And you might say, I hear, I hear that, Ben. I, I hear that. But that seems impossible right now. How, how do I get my, my eyes to look to Jesus when my life circumstances cloud everything from the moment that I wake up in the morning? How do I do that? And I, I don't have a, like a, a silver bullet answer, but I know that it has to start with the community of the church. You have the ability in life together in the church to redirect my gaze to see Jesus and what he is up to that I don't have on my own. I need you to point me, to redirect me to the good news of what Jesus is doing. I, we are at our community group this past Tuesday. We all came into that group, everybody that's in my group, and we were worn out and tired and stressed and everybody had so many things going on. And as we shared what was going on and were caring for each other and praying for each other, it was amazing what happened. Is we as Christians ministered the good news of Jesus to one another. And as we left that group on Tuesday night, we all left better than when we came in because of the way that the Lord used other people to preach the gospel to us, to remind us of what God is doing in our lives in Jesus Christ. Church, in our gathering together today, in our community groups, in our informal gatherings throughout the week with one another, we need to point each other to the gospel of Jesus. It is so easy to lose sight of what God is doing in our day. We need each other desperately. Let's be the church to one another in this time. That's the word of the gospel and the responses to the gospel. Now, briefly, let's look at the outcomes of the gospel. What happens when we see what the risen Christ is up to? Look at verses 48 and 49 and then verse 52. I'm gonna read this for us. And then we're going to close. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, the message, the good news, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, when we truly grasp the good news of Jesus, when we lift our eyes to see him, and how our life circumstances are ultimately a part of that better story, these four things result. Worship, joy, witness, and an experience of God's presence. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want your life to look like that? Who doesn't want our church to look like that? A church that is so in love and enamored with Jesus that we can't help but rejoice and worship and witness to him and experience God's presence tangibly and really among us no matter what is going on in the world. And you see the context for this. These disciples get beat up and run out of town and yet they leave with joy and an experience of the Spirit of God. So this morning, church, 
with the rest of our time together in our gathering, what we're going to do is the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing two songs that direct our gaze to the Savior. And as we do that, I pray that we would all see the risen Christ, that we would know the experience of being forgiven by him, justified by him, and that would fill us with such worship, such joy, and such an experience of his presence among us right now that we could not help but walk out of here as changed people, as people who know the joy and love and comfort of our Savior. Don't underestimate what God can do among his people when we see and truly encounter the beauty of Jesus. So let's get caught up in this story together. I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to come up, and we're going to hit it. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in the gospel, in the good news, the declaration of what, who you are and what you've done, that we have a story that is better than what we are experiencing right now. We need to see you. So Lord, in these songs of praise, give us a taste of your glory. Spirit, be among us right now. And may that cause us as your church to leave here and to further experience the joy and worship and empowering presence of the Spirit among us. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.